I want us to continue our Advent sermons, and I want us to turn our attention to the love of God. And I know immediately when I say that, my thought has always been, how in the world am I going to talk about the great love of God and even begin to approach doing it justly and adequately? And, of course, the answer is that you're not. In fact, I told him this morning I was going to preach on the love of God, and Rob immediately started laughing about that. I know that I come across as very unloving. Of course, I love you guys dearly. Uh, I joked back with Rob and said, Jesus sacrificed himself for his great love for us. I'd probably sacrifice y'all uh, to show you my great love for y'all. But is to reflect on his love is to reflect on, I don't know, I say this often, I realize one of the highest, if not the highest, most glorious attributes of God when you begin to take on and, and talk about the great love of God. But, you know, the reason I say that all the time is because we've committed ourselves in this church to being Bible-centered. And if you're going to be Bible-centered, by default, you're going to be God-centered. So if you're God-centered, you're focusing on the person of God and the works of God. And if you rest your heart on who He is and what He's done, you're immediately going to be awestruck. You're just going to be absolutely blown away. And so if you've set your mind, and here the equation follows, it's a, it's a solid equation, it always works out. If you set your mind on the grandeur and the glory of God and you're awestruck at Him, the Spirit of God does this continual and wonderful work in our hearts to make us more into the image of God in which we're created. That's how that works. We set our eyes on His glory and the more that we stay there, the more like Him we become. And that's a wonderful thing. So this morning, again, I want us to turn our eyes toward the, the love of God. I know it's depths we cannot plumb, nor is it heights that we can climb. But we know enough of God's love to greatly glory in that love. And so let's spend our time glorying in the love of God. Now, to introduce that, i got to take you back to hope. Because the last time we were together we talked about our hope in God. did that a couple of weeks ago. And this hope, and we talked about a lot of hopes, but this particular hope in God is, is very unique. It, it's extraordinary. But one of the most extraordinary things it says about the hope that we have in God in Scripture is found in verse 5 of Romans 5. Look back with me there. It says, And hope does not disappoint. Now, you immediately have to pause and you have to consider that because you and I are depraved and we live in a depraved world, which means we move from one disappointment to the next. And we could stack up a long list of disappointments. In fact, I could just ask you to share this this morning about disappointments that you've experienced in life. And some of them have been tremendously great. And I think we would have something from every single category. We've been disappointed from family. We've been disappointed in kids. We've been disappointed in parents. We've been disappointed in spouses. We've been disappointed in friends. We've been disappointed in jobs. We've been disappointed in our health. We've been disappointed in our abilities. But God says there's one thing that stands above all of those things, and it is the hope that He has given us in Himself. And because we know what His Word says, we trust in it. And God says... Your hope will not, cannot disappoint. 
So out of all those things that have fallen short in our lives, including our own personal lives, of all those things, there is one thing that stands on top of the mountain and it can never fall. It can never disappoint us at all. You will not be disappointed in your hope in God. Why? I know God's word says it, but why? And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we worked through two things and I'm going to add one thing to it this morning. We worked through two reasons why your hope is so certain. And the first one of those was our hope is constructed on the promises of God. If you want a building analogy, all the raw materials, all the materials, all the, ham- the, the, all the nails, all the studs and all the shingles and all the flooring, all of that, if you like, is the promises of God. God constructed our hope based on His promises. And I spend, oftentimes I spend a whole year talking about this with the release time kids, getting them to trust in the Lord because He is a God of His Word. And everything that He says can be, is, has been tried and true and therefore you can trust in them. So when God gives us a promise, we can rest on that promise. And so God constructs our hope with His promises, but He builds it on the foundation of His Son. If you want to take it back to the building, once it all gets finished, what you have there is the glory of the Son of God. Constructed on promises, but built on the foundation of the glorious Son. Therefore, it cannot disappoint disappoint because that Son was perfect in every way, right? So you've got the promises, you've got the Son. We don't need anything else, but yet God gives us one more thing to let us know that our hope is without question Certain. Look back at Romans 5, verse 5. What does he say here? And hope does not disappoint because of what? The love of God. We didn't need anything else, but God says, I'll give you something even more glorious if you like to show you that your hope cannot possibly disappoint you because the hope that I built, I built it on myself, God says. And the one thing that you learn about God, even as a very small child, is God is unchanging. His character is immovable. His character is unshakable. And because God has built our hope on Himself, our hope will never go anywhere Though heaven and earth will pass away, our hope will stand because God built our hope on His own person. Specifically, God built our hope on His love. And the love of God is not going anywhere. So our hope is without question sure and steadfast, right? Now, when I use the word love, problems immediately pop up in our hearts because we're absolutely convinced that we know something about love. Because of our experiences in our life, because of the things that we've done or we've shown to others or we've received from others, we immediately think that we know something about love and would do quite well in counseling others on the subject. But as depraved hearts, we have to remember we don't get definitions to these glorious words in our own hearts and from our own feelings. We get our definition from the Word of God. It works just like God. Everyone thinks that they know something of God. But we know, according to the word of God, the only thing man can know is about is his idol that he has created. 
It looks something like God, but it's not the God of the Bible, right? He constructs his own God, and then he thinks he knows something of God. Calvin was right. Our hearts are nothing more than idle manufacturing plants, creating our own God after our own image. So to understand God, we have to turn to God's Word, and to understand love, we have to turn to God's Word and see how God defines love. You with me? Now, the very first passage, if you're going to set your mind to understanding what love is, true love, biblical love, the very first passage you have to consider is 1 John 4, 8. And you know this. You don't have to turn there. Three simple words John writes. God is what? Love. God is love. Now, that's interesting. Because John doesn't say God shows love. John didn't say God is loving. No, he said God is love. It's an arthritis. There's no article there. It means God is that which is by quality love. God in all of his fullness, love. God in all of his essence, love. And that's hard for some of us to get our minds and our, our arms around Right? Because we talk a lot about wrath and we think those are contrary to one another. And it would take a very long and lengthy sermon to explain how those are not contrary to one another. But you've got to understand, according to God's word, God is love. And so to understand the essence of love and to understand the, the fullness of love, you can't do that apart from God. Because apart from God, there is no love. If God is love, you remove yourself from God, you're out of relationship or don't have a personal relationship with God, you know nothing of love because God himself is love. And so to understand love rightly, you've got to understand God rightly. And so these are how we approach love. Now I want to give you three things. I kind of broke this down into it hopefully a little bit easier because I'm having to move quicker. But there's three ways that God teaches us about love in His Word. First thing He does is He gives us pictures and types, just like He does everything else. We have pictures and types of love, and I'll give you some examples. Second thing God always does is He gives you a clear explanation. We look at the Word and we see clear explanations of love, and He'll give that to us. And then God does something marvelous with this unique word. He wants us to understand it. God gives us demonstrations of love. So let's walk through these pictures and tops and explanations and demonstrations. And I won't take too long. But love is certainly not without all of its wonderful pictures and types that we see in the Bible. Remember, and this is in fact what we're doing with the kids on Thursday in release time. We're talking about pictures and types of Christ in the Old Testament, right? David. David was a great king. David was the quote-unquote greatest king, but we know that he was not a perfect king. David did some horrible things as king, right? But our hope is not in David, nor is our hope in David's kingdom. David was a type of a king to come because there was a greater king coming, and this king would not be just a a manly king. He would also be a godly king. He would be the king of kings. And he would be perfect in every way. So we look at King David and we understand something about King Jesus. But David's not Jesus. You see how these things work. Look at Moses. Moses was a great shepherd. Man, if you want to understand what it's like to shepherd a group of people or shepherd a church, 
read about Moses. Moses was a great shepherd, but he was only a top of a greater shepherd to come. There was a greater one coming who would lead the people of God, and that was the Lord Jesus. Think about priest, Aaron. It's, it, I even struggle with the fact to say that Aaron was a great priest. We'll say Aaron was a good priest. He did some major bonehead things. It makes me think about my own life as a preacher. But man, Aaron did some goofy things, but he was God's chosen priestly line. He was a good priest. But he's just a picture. Because there was a priest who was coming who would be the great priest. In fact, the priest is still our mediator that's seated at the right hand of God. So that's how pictures and types work. Now, where are the pictures and types of love? Well, one of the greatest pictures that you're going to find, not only in Scripture, but in life, is a mother's love. You find it in the Bible, but let's talk about it in life. A mother's love is an extraordinary love that causes us to reflect on the great love of our Heavenly Father. I mean, a mother's love, it's unchanging, right? It's unshakable. It's immovable. It gets up in the middle of the night. A mother's love, a mother can be smacked by a totally dissatisfied and distraught infant and coddle and care for that child and feed that child and rock that child to sleep and lay it lovingly back down in its crib with tears of joys in her eyes. It's a mother's love. But it's a picture in a type of a greater love that we see from our Heavenly Father. Paul grabbed a hold of this over in 1 Thessalonians when he said to the church there, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Paul, Paul was trying to demonstrate to the church his love for them. And he says, I've loved you like a, a nursing mother and her new infant. Because he understood the powerful picture in a mother's love and the love of God. So you've, you've got those pictures, but in the Bible... The Lord just flat out says that he loves like a mother. I, here's you a couple of them. Isaiah 66, verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted. Isaiah 49, the Lord says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb, even though they might forget, I will never forget you. Now there's a powerful picture. And unfortunately, we do live in the days where a mother forgets the child that they gave birth to. That is beyond our comprehension, right? But God says in His Word, even though you might live in a day where that takes place, you need to know that will never happen to me. I'll always have compassion on you like a nursing mother. One more I'll give you that I found very interesting. I don't know that it's necessary, but God compares Himself to a mother bird. In a number of places in the Psalms. Psalms 91.4 is one of those. He says, I will cover you with my pinions and under my wings you may seek refuge. Just like a mother bird when all the chicks get terrified, they'll all flock to mom and they'll get up under mother hen's wings and she'll just kind of hide them. They'll, she'll be the refuge in the storm. God says, that's the same thing I do for you. I'm your refuge. I'm your mother hen. And when you get terrified, just come running I got a warm place for you and I will cover you. So again, God's giving us pictures and types to help us understand His great love. And a mother's love is absolutely wonderful in all of its expressions. 
But God's love is even greater than these things, right? We have a God of tremendous love. Now, again, let me, for the sake of time, I'm going to keep moving because there's all kind of pictures in the Old Testament of His love. But not only do we have pictures, like I said, we also have clear explanations in God's Word. I hope that you've been walking through that Advent book that we sent out to the church, at least some Advent book, but we sent out to you Popper's uh, Christmas Advent messages this year. They've all been good, but some of them I was just like, man, that is just so good. December 11th was one of them. If you, if you didn't make it through them or you've forgotten, go back and read a few of them, especially December 11th. He deals with the John 3.16. He deals with one word in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave, right? So when you think about that, and I said the word so, it probably didn't even connect with you because you think you know what it means. You think God so loved. He just loved us so much that He gave His Son. That's not what that word means. In fact, let me bait you along a little further. I've told you before, Greek's unique. And the word that the writer wants to put the point of emphasis on, he puts that word first. So in that statement there, for God so loved the world, what word would you put first in that sentence if we were going to write it in the Greek language? If you were a part of the typical church today, you would say, oh, it's the world because it's about us. We're humanists. We're in the center of worship. So the world comes first. And you no, 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 that's not first. Us Reformed people, we'd go, it's the love of God. Love comes first. And normally I would probably agree with you, but that's not the first word. The first word is who toss. No, I'm sorry, who toss. Sorry. Hutos, and that word is translated so, thus, or in this way. That's the first thing, first word. So in other words, John 3.16 literally can be translated like this. In this way, God loved the world He gave His Son. You see, God's love is different than our love. God's love is extraordinarily unique. And if we don't pay attention to the types and listen to the explanations and then go on to the demonstration, we'll never get it. God says, in this way, I have loved you. In this way. You know, what way? Our ways? Do you love us in our ways, God? No, I don't love you in your ways. I love you in my way. And it is in this way that I love you. I gave my son for you. You see. That phrase is used in a number of different places. John will use it again in 1 John 4, 9. He writes it like this. But this, the love of God was manifested. By this, the love of God was manifested. In other words, God did something particular to demonstrate His love. Y'all, we got a new baby. And we're so excited about it. Rob and Becky just all of a sudden have a baby. Pray for them. They didn't sleep last night. And I think that's kind of funny. But I'm so thankful. Let me just pause. I'll bring this up later. Y'all know how many foster kids go through this church. It's ridiculous. How many kids have been born and fostered and adopted in this church? I just praise the Lord for it. Well, yeah, here's another one. Let's praise the Lord for you guys. Y'all are awesome. 
love. By this, right, we know the love of God. Ephesians 2.4. Listen to how Paul does it here. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. His great love. Now, to circle you back in, capture your attention, look at Romans 5.8. This was one of the most clearest explanations I think you're going to find other than John 3.16. Notice, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 6, the first six words of verse 8. But God demonstrates what? What's the next three words? His own love. Again, it's different than yours. It's not like yours. God's love is unique. And so God wants to say, okay, not only have I given you pictures and types, and not only have I given you explanations of it, but I have demonstrated my particular love, right? And while we're on the word demonstration, y'all do realize how important demonstrations are, right? That's why I'm a science guy. Because not only do you do theory, but you also have labs, and you go into the lab and you demonstrate the theories. And I always thought that was the coolest thing. Abby just finished up first round of Organic One. Like my favorite class in college. You do the theory, you go in the lab, work through the lab. Physics was awesome. We all love demonstrations. In my midlife crisis, I've decided that Paige and I are going to get a Porsche 911 Turbo S. Just kidding. It's over 100 grand. But they demo those things. So there's going to be a day coming real soon where I'm going to go demo that Porsche for about an hour. I want the demonstration ride, right? Demonstrations are absolutely awesome. And sometimes we just have to live with the demonstration and don't go into the real thing. But God says, listen, I've done you one better. I not only painted pictures and pictures and types. I not only gave you clear explanations, but I've also demonstrated for you my love. And so let's move on and see how God demonstrated his love because he demonstrated his love in everything he did in the sun. But here's what I want us to do, because I've got to add two things. As we walk through the demonstrations, I want you to pay very careful attention of the attributes of God's love because they're not like our love. If you want to glory in the love of God, you need to see the attributes, what makes it so special. And the first thing that I'll give you, let me just give you the title and then I'll work through the parts, is the selfless nature of God's love. That's the most glorious of attributes, I'm convinced. God is absolutely selfless in His love. Now, the first thing God does to demonstrate His love is sending His Son. 1 John 4, 9, the Lord says this, By this, what? By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world. In other words, God says, I've demonstrated my love for you. The first thing I did, I sent my Son so that you would know that I love you. Y'all, this is, this is a sermon. This is Christmas. This is the Advent. We are celebrating the love of God and we know God loves us because God sent His Son. And so we read Luke 2, right? I think I read it a couple of weeks ago. Angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good, no, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And when I read that, you can say amen, and then I can say God loves you. See? See? And when your kids get up in a, the awfulest fuss on Sunday morning and start ripping and paper flying everywhere, you can pause them and go, let me tell you something real quick. God loves you. You, you know how you, you know that? Because He sent His Son. There was a day when our Savior was born. God loves you. Now, we can back up further from the birth, though. We don't just have to say, when God sent us a Savior who was born a baby, we can back up further and consider the condensation of the Son, right? The condescension of the Son. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The condescension of the Son. God became a man. You realize that? He was in the form of God. Before there was anything, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And He was with God. He was God. He was in the form of God before He came as a man. Philippians 2, this is what Paul writes. Although He, Christ Jesus, existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to for Himself. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God became a man who remained fully God, yet became fully man. Jesus condescended. Therefore, we know that God loves us. And you do realize that Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the Father as the God-man. When he went back to heaven, he didn't, go, he didn't go back into the form that he originally was, in the form of God, whatever that was. But he continued in the form of being fully God, fully man, seated at the right hand of the Father as our mediator. He built a bridge so that we could get to God. And God himself built the bridge. Jesus Christ, fully God, became fully man and made us a way. God loves you. But he even went down further than that. When you think of this, what did God send? It's not just in the sending of the Son and the birth of the Son. It's the condescension of the Son. But it's also just in the fact when you consider what exactly did God send and that what He sent is the greatest treasure there is. I don't care who you are, whether you're a spiritual being or physical being. I don't care where you are on, in heaven or on earth. I don't care where you find yourself on the other side of the stars or on this side of the stars. The greatest treasure that expands all of those places is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father's greatest treasure. Now this should blow your mind when you consider the love of God. What was it that God sent? The greatest thing, if you will, there is. You know, we're going to give gifts, right, at Christmas. Some of them will be impressive, right? Some of them will be way too expensive. But none of us will give the greatest, right? We can't. 
Because the greatest remains to be the Son. But God the Father could give the greatest, and so to demonstrate His love, He gives the great one, the one through whom all things were made, the one through whom all things hold together. All things were created for Him and through Him and in Him. He is the glorious one, and God sent that one. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a great physical treasure of gold and diamonds and those sort of things to purchase our redemption. He didn't send a legion of angels. He didn't send the keys to the throne room. No. He went way above and beyond all of that and He sent the greatest, period. And He sent His Son who condescended and became a man and who was born a babe. To understand the love of God, you have to understand the sending of the Son but you also have to understand the sacrifice of the Son. Look at Romans 5 eight. Last two words, so powerful. God demonstrates what? His own love toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for who? For us, right? Christ died for us. Not only did God become a man and was born a babe, but he suffered and he bled and he died. There was the sacrifice of the greatest thing. And God knew that when God sent him, which is even beyond our wildest imaginations of understanding God's love. Because if you know about the suffering and the death, why would you send the son? Why would you do that? Send something else. And that's not the love of God. I will send the greatest thing knowing that the greatest thing must suffer and die. So my point was, number one on this, about the characteristics of God or the attributes of the love of God. The first thing is, is it's selfless beyond measure. We cannot comprehend the selflessness of the love of God. Can't measure that, but we can glory in that. God's love is beyond selfless, right? Second element I, I bring to you about considering the love of God is to understand God's love. You've got to understand the recipients of God's love because he didn't just do it arbitrarily. He wasn't just a demonstration where God went, ta-da, there's my love. No, that was only part of it. You see, you have to consider the recipients of it to consider the magnitude of God's love. And I take you back to verse 5. Romans 5 and verse 8, the last two words rather, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that must make it special or make us special. No. No, you're not, you're not getting this. Right? It wasn't for us because we're special. In fact, there are three words that describe us in the passages that I read this morning, and none of them are pretty. Look back with me at verse 5. Hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He's given to us. For while we were still, first word, helpless. You see, all that God did that we just talked about, now we've got to consider who He did it for. And the first word that God uses to describe those that He did it for is the word helpless. You're helpless. 
And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir at this point. You guys have a thorough grasp of the fact that you're helpless and hopeless apart from the grace of God. But the majority of people who profess Christ are yet to be convinced of their helplessness and hopelessness before God. And until you understand how helpless you are before God, you cannot glory in the greatness of the gospel. You're helpless. Second word's worse. Notice verse 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the what? The ungodly. And so the second word God wants to help you understand. All that he did, this is who he did it for. He did it for the ungodly. Now, if you want to try to convince somebody they're helpless, good luck with that. But if you want to try to convince them that they're ungodly, you better be prepared to duck because they're going to argue. What are they going to say? I'm a what? I'm a good person. Well, God demonstrated his love not for good people. God demonstrated his love for the ungodly. You see, there is a unique group. The ungodly. You see, God's love is amazing, not just in all that he did, but who he did it for. Look at the last word that he uses to describe us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet, third word, what is it? Sinners. There's not a good word in there, I'm sorry. These are the people that God demonstrated his love for. Helpless, ungodly sinners so that we could glory in the greatness of His love. Now, this passage has been on my mind for reasons I'll explain, but I don't, know of, I, don't, I don't know of a more powerful and painful picture of the great love of God than what we find in the book of Hosea. So turn back with me there. Those of you in Sunday school, I guess you'll have special insight into this. I don't have a whole lot, guys. Appreciate your patience this morning, though. Hosea is terrible. You know, anytime you run across these Christians that are, uh, I don't know, prone to say, oh, God just wants to bless us, those sort of things. Or they like to quote, was it Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? I know the plans that I have for you. Plans not to harm you and prosper you. I'm like, have you read Hosea? Because if you said that to Hosea, he probably smacked you across the face. Hosea got a tough call. He got one of the most difficult calls in the whole of the Bible, and he got the call in order to glorify God. It's terrible. Look at verse 2, and you'll see the first part of the, this Hosea call. And the reason I bring you here is because I want you to understand the love of God. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, Hosea 1 and 2, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, the harlot, and she conceived and bore him a son. God was like, I got to paint a picture of my love. It's important to me. So Hosea, this is what I want you to do. Go marry a harlot. Why? Well, he didn't ask. He just went and did it. Because he knew his God was going to glorify his name in whatever he did. 
And so Hosea goes down and he marries a harlot to accomplish the purposes of God. Now, it's interesting what you find in chapter 2, because God brings judgment upon the people for they've committed harlotry and spiritual adultery against the Lord. It's not about sexual immorality. It's about spiritual adultery. They had forsaken their father, God, their husband, if you will, and pursued other gods. And God says, this is spiritual adultery that you've committed against me. And so the first part of chapter 2 is nothing but the outpouring of the wrath of God. And then when you come down to verse 14, though, you come back to the grace of God. Notice verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness. I will speak kindly to her. And then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor is the door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Look at verse 19. I'll betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and compassion. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. Verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I also will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So we have the judgment and we have the compassion. And then the Lord finishes the picture. Look at Hosea chapter three, verse one. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband. You see, the harlot had left, yet she's an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me. For many days, and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I also will be toward you. In other words, he went and married the harlot. He had children with her, and one day she left to go play the harlot, and he went to where she was playing the harlot. He bought her from the other man that she went with, brought her back home, and extended and poured out his love on her once again. And you're like, who does that? Hosea does that. Why does he do that? Because God says, I want you to understand my love. This is what I've done for you. You see, you can't understand the love of God till you understand the people that God has poured out His love on. Now, here's why I'm here this morning. Steve called this week. And so we've both got kids getting married. You know, Kay's getting married. Ab's getting married both this summer. So we're talking about love. In fact, if I've married any of you, I've carried you through a particular book of, about love and marriage. And after talking to Steve, I'm like, I'm going to throw that book away. It's much bigger than that book even begins to understand. Because he took me to the book of Hosea. And he said, you know, I was in college before I married Wes. And I was thinking about the love that I've been called to demonstrate, the love of God. And I resolved in my mind that I was going to love Wes, love less, no matter how much, no matter how far she got away from God. Steve said, I was going to demonstrate the love of God toward Leslie. I didn't care 
where she went or who she became. And then he started talking about Hosea. And he said, man, that's a powerful picture of God's love, isn't it? And I was like, Steve, I didn't even think about that. He's like, yeah, she went off and played the harlot and Hosea went after her and he, he paid money for her and he brought her back home and the only thing he did was he loved her. He gave her all her stuff back and he just could, He said, you know, that's the love of God. And he said, you know, when you get married, you've got to resolve in your heart. That's the kind of love. And I'm like, brother, don't do that to me. I never thought about that. You see, God's love is not like our love. I'm not ashamed. Well, I should be ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say it. I picked her because she was beautiful. And then when I found out she loved me back, I bought her a ring. That's our love. Isn't that childish? It's not like our Heavenly Father's love. His is extraordinary. He looks at us and goes, I picked you because you're as ugly as sin. And I knew you were never going to be faithful. But I picked you to pour my love out on you and one day you'll understand my great love and your glory in that. You see, we have so much to celebrate. We have so much to celebrate in the love of God. I said, how in the world can we talk about this when I started? I got a better phrase. How in the world can we not talk about the love of God? What do we have better to talk about than the love of God? It is beyond measure. He gave us pictures and types. He described it in His Word, and then He demonstrated it on Calvary. He gave His Son in order that He might die for us. There's great reasons for rejoicing. You are loved in ways that I cannot describe. But I hope through this morning that you understand God loves you a lot more than you ever realized. He doesn't love you because you're pretty. He doesn't love you because you're obedient. He doesn't love you because you're an American. He doesn't love you because you're a conservative. He loves you because you're nothing but helpless, ungodly, and sinful. And the reason, again, He does that is so that we might marvel in His great love. Let's pray.